welcome to Dyslexia Canada's Spotlight. The goal of this series is to create a national dialogue about literacy and the systemic barriers that have prevented so many students from becoming confident and competent readers. But the tide is turning. Across Canada, educators, researchers, and advocates are coming together to put evidence into practice and to advance the right to read. We want to share their stories, celebrate their successes, and have an open and honest dialogue about the challenges they are facing. Because we know that by coming together, we can ensure that every child in Canada gets off to a good start with reading, school, and life. Learning to read is not a frill. It is not a privilege. It is a basic and essential skill. Learning to read is a human right. Those were the words that launched the Right to Read public inquiry in 2019. The Ontario Human Rights Commission launched this groundbreaking inquiry after two Ontario-based organizations, Decoding Dyslexia Ontario and IDA Ontario, joined forces with Dyslexia Canada to bring forward a complaint of systemic discrimination within public education against children with dyslexia. But the presentation they made to support this claim was far more than just the heartbreaking stories of children experiencing the social, emotional, and academic consequences of early reading failure. They also provided a vision of what could be. We pointed to examples of schools and districts that are doing things differently and experiencing improved outcomes for all students. Once you see the life-changing impact that putting evidence into practice has, both for children and educators, it becomes very difficult to remain complacent and to sim simply accept that external factors like poverty are solely to blame for inequitable student outcomes. One inspiring example that we have here in Canada to clearly demonstrate the powerful impact of implementing best practices in reading instruction comes from Dr. Giorgio at the University of Alberta. For over a decade, Dr. Giorgio has been working with schools and boards in Alberta to train teachers to provide systematic and explicit instruction in foundational reading skills, implement universal early screening, and provide effective early reading intervention to prevent reading difficulties from developing. By implementing this proactive preventative approach, they have succeeded in reducing the rate of reading failure to below 4% of students. The success of his work has led to major changes in Alberta, both with a new curriculum and a province-wide rollout of early screening which started this past September. This is a story worth celebrating from coast to coast to coast. I'm Alicia Smith and I'm the Executive Director of Dyslexia Canada. We launched the Spotlight series as a way, a way to share stories like this from across the country. These sessions were originally recorded as webinars and the full recordings of those are available on Dyslexia Canada's YouTube channel. In this first episode, we are joined by Dr. Giorgio and Superintendent Mike McMahon of the Fort Vermillion School Division in Northern Alberta. I really enjoyed my conversation with them, and I hope you will as well. Okay. I think that over the last 15 years, we have done a lot of 
research here in Alberta that allows us to have a, a pretty clear and comprehensive idea of what works, what doesn't work, what we need to do um, as Ministry of Education, what we need to do as superintendents of different school divisions, what we need to do as researchers that collaborate with different school divisions, and what we need to do as organizations like Dyslexia Canada to support the work that we have been doing over these years. So in the next couple of minutes, I will be presenting uh, what I call a comprehensive approach to improving literacy with examples of that work, of the process that has led us to this approach that I think that is quite powerful. And I'm saying quite powerful, not based on how kids are feeling, uh, based on empirical evidence, based on data we have collected. And that's partly the reason why I am joined today by Superintendent Mike McMahon, whom I respect uh, greatly for the work that he has done in his own school division. I, I had said, I think, in multiple occasions that I feel Mike McMahon is the best superintendent currently we have in Alberta. And you'll probably see why. Now, we know that when we are talking about tiers, and, and that goes back to the response to intervention theoretical models, there are about 80% of the kids that will be learning no matter um, what the instruction will look like. Assuming they receive some kind of instruction in their class and also support from peers or, or um, parents, etc., 80% of them or roughly 80% will be able to read. But there are 20% of the kids who need additional support, either in small groups, um, tier two or one on one. And that's about 5%. So Ideally, at any point in time, when we assess the kids in schools, we should see that we have about 20% of the kids having some reading difficulty. So that should be kind of a goal to reach that point that about 20% of the kids are struggling. However, based on data we have, and, and I'm not using my own personal assessments. This is published information in different places, um, in, in different journals and, and avenues. We know that that number is much higher. And to be more current, in 2021, when Alberta Education asked all the school divisions in Alberta to assess their grade one to three kids and report how many of them were performing below a cutoff score so that Alberta would provide additional funding to the school divisions to address the learning losses due to COVID, they were a little bit shocked to find out that the school divisions themselves reported that they had about 32.4, in fact, the accurate number of kids performing below grade level. So that's 12% already higher than what research says that number should be. So what I will be providing you tonight is 
an idea or if you want to call it a procedure or a structure of what we have found it has worked. And it has worked to the point that we, some of the school divisions that have been using this approach and have been engaging their teachers in ongoing training, they currently enjoy less than 5% of struggling readers. So go from 32 across Alberta to about less than 5%. That's a big jump. And that's the direction we want to see for sure in the future. So what is there? I call it an Alberta made solution, but that's not really um, accurate to say. This is, this is what is given knowledge, what is accepted across the world of best practices. So what do we, what should we do with our system to see the number of struggling readers go down? You need to provide ongoing training to teachers on best practices. Unfortunately, we know from the universities that our undergraduate students graduate with one undergraduate course on language and literacy. And there is nobody really who believes that with one course in one term, that pre-service teachers will have a very good understanding of how to assess and how to intervene with struggling kids. So we need to, as researchers, to go back to schools and work collaboratively with superintendents to train the teachers on best practices. And we have had great success here in Alberta, at least with many school divisions that are interested to hear what best practices uh, mean and what they look like in every classroom. We also need to provide norm referenced assessments, not just criterion referenced assessments that we ask. We ask the teachers to do on a regular basis, but we also need to know where our students stand compared to same age peers across North America. That serves as a good indicator of how well our um, students are doing relative to the norms. And also it gives us an, an indication of how well we can progress over time and um, areas in which the students may need additional support. Finally, we need to provide evidence-based tier two, tier three intervention. And I'm saying this because there are many instances that I have seen in our schools here in Alberta where um, they are not using evidence-based tier two interventions. We also know that early prevention is the best, so is the best intervention. And we, when you hear early prevention, that means that we need to find out who are the kids who are struggling early on so we can provide them with the right type of intervention. When I started this work with schools about 15 years ago, many of them had expressed interest in some standardized norm referenced assessments. And that's when we um, came up with this set of three reading assessments that the teachers are administering because they are quick, they're reliable, they have alternate forms, and they can calculate and give to the teachers score, standard scores and percentile ranks that they can then use to um, interpret. And I will be showing you how they do it in the next couple of slides. 
Now notice that when I was asked about these assessments, they, the principals had asked me find out what assessments would work for our type of schools and the fact that we want them to be quick and not take a long time to administer, etc. So I was given these four criteria from the uh, principals to work with and go through a lot of assessments that are published uh, through different publishers and just make some recommendations. And I have to say that when we started this work, we had many more assessments, but we realized that we were getting um, more information that was absolutely needed to do the work. So we cut it down to the four tasks that I referred to earlier. So the assessments had to be quick. They should be administered by teachers, not by psychologists or my graduate students. They should have alternate forms, A, B, C, and D, et cetera, so that teachers could use them at different points in time. And most importantly, they should assess the five pillars of literacy. Because the principals and superintendents wanted to know how our students are doing in the different areas of instruction that we should be providing. Now, there are, once they collect the data, we have a process in which we, the teachers working collaboratively with their same grade level colleagues, they discuss the data of their students. The principals also come together and discuss the data of their schools. And if you have multiple school divisions, and we haven't achieved that yet, we could potentially have multiple superintendents presenting their own data and discussing their progress over time. So there are four ways in which you can uh, interpret the data or look at the data at the school level, at the grade level, class level, and student level. Of course, the most important one is the student level. It's the one that we ask the teachers to pay attention to because if the student level scores are not improving over time, then of course the class levels or grade levels will not be improving either. So how do we interpret uh, the data um, at school, at the school level, as you can see here in that measure, the TOSREF, you had school A, school B. Obviously the difference that you can see right away is from the grade two and three kids. In school A, they are about 10 standard points lower than school B. And if the schools are located side by side or in the next neighborhood, then clearly it's not a matter of differences in socioeconomic status or differences in other um, demographic information. It has to do more with what the schools are doing and the practices that they use in their own schools. You can look at it at the grade level. If you have multiple classes within the same grade, you can average the standard scores of the students. You can see here that we had form A and form B, and in uh, May, they also assess their students in form C. You can calculate the change over time. And because these are standard scores, any change is not due to the kids getting older. It's due to instruction. And therefore, the message that teachers get right away is that their work has a measurable impact on their students' performance. Grades four, five, and six, 
They started with standard scores below 100, which is the average and the target if you have a normally performing um, class or grade. And by January, they reached that level. Obviously, there is more work to be done for the earlier grades. Can look at also class data. If you are a principal and you have multiple classes, let's pretend uh, they administered the TOSREC in October. You calculate the average across classes and you see that everybody starts about the same level. Then you reassess them in January. You can see that everybody now is in green, which means that they are performing within average and, and grade expected levels. But you can also calculate the difference between October and January. And a difference of about seven standard points means that the kids are growing by 1.5 years within that time period. When they assess them in May, you can see that all of the classes have been performing above grade level. They have all been improving, but class number two has been improving much more than any other class. So if for principals, that, could, that would mean that perhaps we can ask that teacher to share what she's doing in her whole class with the other teachers in our, either within the same grade level or across grades. Most importantly, you, can, you should be looking at the student profile. When you put the score side by side, we use this color coding to help the teachers because when we started this work at the beginning, there were not many teachers who knew what standard scores mean and what percentile ranks mean, etc. So we had to color code the kids. Anybody scoring below 85 was color coded in red. Anybody between 86 and 100 was color coded as orange to indicate that there is room for growth and anybody above 100 with the green color. So if you look at student number one, you clearly see that there is a problem in TOSREC, and we know that TOSREC is measuring uh, reading uh, efficiency and comprehension. So I will be working or putting more emphasis on reading efficiency and comprehension activities with that student. In contrast, student number two shows to have reading difficulties across all areas with the lowest score being in, in Tower, in this case, the phonemic decoding efficiency task that is measuring phonics, and we do more work with that child in that area. Because of the success of the work we have done over the last couple of years across multiple school divisions, Alberta, when I was seconded and I was working on, on, on the new English language arts curriculum, they asked uh, me and colleagues to offer our expertise and provide to schools some reading assessments that were, would be quick to administer and that the province could deploy and, and, and the teachers could use for free across the province. So we admit, we got permissions, we used the castles and Kofkara. I see that there is an L missing from castles, um, which is similar to the diagnostic test of work reading processes that is used in, in the UK. It has three conditions, regular words, exception words, and non-words. 
And by administering these three conditions to the students, the teachers get immediate information about whether their kids are doing well in um, non-work indicating that they have good phonic skills and exception work, meaning that they have um, good irregular work reading and print exposure. Now, as of um, September 2022, all the grade one to three students in Alberta, they are screened. Uh, Alberta education uh, mandated screening of all the kids in grades one to three uh, twice a year at the beginning and at the end of the school year. So whatever has been recommended with the Ontario Human Rights Commission report and was to the right direction and I applaud the work that has been done and put into that report by my colleagues, you see that we have already addressed that need for early screening in Alberta. Now, if we were to, I, I mentioned earlier that we should be also using evidence-based tier two, tier three interventions. It happened that in 2015, in collaboration with Dr. Robert Savage, who is the Dean of the Faculty of Education at York University, we received a federal grant to implement tier two intervention to students in Quebec and in Alberta. We started with about 219 grade one kids. By the end of grade three, we were left with one, with three kids who were struggling to read. And that's partly, you might be wondering, this is way lower than the 5% of the kids who are typically having dyslexia in the whole population. The answer is that we have been successful because teachers knew how to teach in their regular class. And because we had good interventions in place that were provided intensively for three years. In the last year, we also received a grant from Alberta Education to provide full-out small group intervention to grade two and grade three kids in Alberta who were struggling to read. We engaged four school divisions. Fort Vermilion School Division, uh, that Mike is, is the superintendent, was one of them. 83 classes, 362 kids who were screened to be at risk or experiencing reading difficulties. And after 4.5 months, so from the beginning of October to early February, 80% of them improved by 1.5 years using standardized measures, norm reference assessment and 70% of them no longer needed additional intervention at that time. We also measured their and delayed post-its, which was in May. We are currently analyzing the data, so I don't really know and I can't tell about how many kids uh, maintain their gains. Because of the success of the screening phase, and the work we have been doing with the intervention that I mentioned to you earlier, Alberta Education, they realized the need to rely on data to make decisions, which I very much applaud. And they asked us to provide them with some lessons that they could package and provide to all the schools, again, for free, 
so that they would address the learning losses due to COVID. So we did provide them with these reading interventions. And I know that several school divisions outside of Alberta, they have inquired about this. They asked Alberta Education for permission to use this. And Alberta Education was um, okay with sharing these resources with them. So what we have learned in this process, I learned, I personally learned that Rome was not built in one day. And I had multiple discussions with Mike over these last 15 years. And sometimes where I express my dissatisfaction or disappointment with how slow the process is with some school divisions or across the province, when you know that some things have been working and you, you have the evidence to prove it, but change is not coming very quickly. I also learned that it is a joint effort. I personally made an effort to reach out to every school division and particularly the ones that they were participating in our research to help the teachers to establish a partnership with the schools. We have a mutual partnership that they are supporting our research, but we also go back to the schools and we support the work that is done in the schools. I also learned that there is no silver bullet. Most of the school divisions, unfortunately, they ask me, give me your program. And they think that by opening up the book and, and reading through the pages to their kids, they can impact or change the reading performance of their kids. That's, uh, I think, a utopia to believe that you can do that by just reading through the pages unless you train the teachers on best practices and they understand how to provide these best practices to their students and have data to use to support your decisions, then change is not happening. You also need to have a long-term plan and to develop a structure supporting your teachers. I hear quite often that we wanna see it 20% reduction in our struggling readers in a year time. Well, if you have been having reading difficulties for 20 years and the numbers have been rising, the chances that you will see a huge decline in a year are very small. So we typically have a three-year plan with school divisions here in Alberta that I work with. They see a huge growth in the very at the very beginning when that teachers actually start doing something in there with their students in their class. And there is a gradual improvement in their performance until we get to the lower than 10, 20%, and in many cases, lower than 5%. I also learned that you're allowed to make mistakes. We made many mistakes in the past when we were trying to sort this process out. We learned from our mistakes, and now we have a process in place that is working and it is working across different school divisions irrespective of where they are located. With respect to norm referenced assessments, if we use how students are doing across North America as the norm, what happens if many regions are doing so poorly that they skew the norm downwards? Um, example, because of the use of non-evidence-based teaching practices um, such as through queuing, which is common. Uh, but if all regions were teaching to best practices, then that norm would be higher. So what, what are your thoughts about using norm referenced? Yes, that, that is a fair criticism. 
but when you don't have locally normed assessments, norm reference assessments, you have to rely, you have to start from somewhere. And I can tell you confidently that after testing more than 20,000 kids across Alberta, this is the take home message. In grade one and two, the scores are about two standard points lower than the American norms, okay? Two standards and two standard points. And the reason for that is that typically the kids in the States, kindergarten is mandatory. They also do morphological awareness, morphonics work in kindergarten before the kids go to grade one. So their grade one scores are a little bit higher than our scores. But by grade three, we know that our scores here, at least in Alberta, they are about the same as the American norm. So there are no difference. So I'm quite confident that we are not underestimating or overestimating our students' performance. And what we are mostly interested is not the start necessarily the starting point, it's the growth over time. So you may start with two standard points lower than the American norm, but if you are showing growth over time, that's what we want to see in the schools, in every school. We'd also add that Alberta Education is currently developing norms for the assessments that we have deployed. And so we will also be having locally developed norms in the schools as of next August. That's fantastic. And just um, a highlight I'm from us too, um, I know I haven't talked yet, but we, we went with this for like five years and now have built our own norms around that. And we've actually have our cut score now at 90, which is five points higher or full year of growth higher on a standard score than was where you originally started at 85. So um, over time, you build your own context. And as you improve, you move the norm to, you know, to achieve more or higher where you believe you should be. So right now, our cut score in terms of, of tier one sports is 90 and higher, where the when you first started, it was a five. So as you move, you can as you're pulling that data in and comparing it over time, norms don't just fall out of the sky. Um, some people think they do, but they don't. And they take a little bit of work to get there. And we collected four years of data before we went down that path to get there. So I would suggest start somewhere and then you have a path to, to build your own. Yeah, that's a really good point too. And that, you know, you determine what the cut score is gonna be based on your interpretation of, of that data and what you think the students need. So that that makes sense as well, for sure. You had mentioned the, um, the resources that you developed for the Ministry of Alberta. Is there a website or a place where people can go and request that access or? Uh, no, you just need to reach out to Alberta Education. Um, that is, when you go to New Land Alberta or the Alberta Education website, there's a contact information there. So you can reach out to the person that uh, is in the contact, or you can send me an email and I can direct you to the right person and you can request this information from them. That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, so why don't we turn it over to Mike? Um, so I'll just explain our story from uh, our journey for structured literacy supports. And I think uh, we, George and I met about five or six years ago, and we've kind of been on this journey together. And I'll tell you where we come from. We came from a place where uh, balanced literacy was, was king and F&P was our queen. 
Um, <laughs> and that's the, and, and we had a measure of CAT and we were using CAT as a measure. And when I took over the seat as superintendent, I felt it wasn't giving us what we needed in order to, in order to move forward. Um, and that, that was a big uh, piece for me. And I'll tell you a little bit who we are and I'll get to that in a minute, but um, so we're in the northwest corner of the province. We're about the size of New Brunswick in terms of land mass. Um, the couple of schools that I'll share with you are either 100% ESL or about 50% First Nations, Métis, and Inuit in different communities. But in both of those cases, uh, we have very unique cultures and definitely um, some issues around dyslexia and some learning, reading, learning disabilities. And so interventions were a huge help in terms of moving that forward. Um, we do run in what's called an assurance model, which we are accountable directly to parents. Um, and starting this month at the end of November, um, our, lie, our data that we pull in from our assessments, the three T's in reading, of course, and our RAT5 in math, will be live data on the website in which parents can interact with um, digitally. They can search from divisions to boys and girls to First Nations, Métis, and Inuit to non-First Nations and Métis and Inuit, but it'll be the first, probably the first jurisdiction in Alberta that has live data that flows after each assessment. We assess kids um, three times a year, but we knew that CAT5 was not a measure that impacted our pedagogy, and we needed something that was going to change that. And so when I met George, I said, what's well, going to do that? And then we started talking about the three T's is what we call them. And from my chair, I always say that your job is very simple. Just move the dial on every kid. And so as George was showing those screens, we analyze all our data now in Power BI, which is a Microsoft Office product. And beside every child, you will either see a red arrow or a green arrow in, in all three assessments to say whether they went up or they went down. Um, but in order to start that, we needed to have all of our teachers and our leadership have a foundational knowledge of the science of reading. We know systematically how to teach reading. So if we know systematically how to teach reading and we know systematically through our norm reference measures, what can identify which pillar is struggling, then we can put interventions in place that are measurable, specific, and the biggest key to all of that, there's two huge issues. One, the system becomes extremely accountable and when you put accountability in a system to that degree, um, it adds a little bit of stress to the system. There's no doubt about it. But it also, you also, from an intervention perspective, at least from a superintendent's chair, is we need to minimize autonomy around interventions. So what we were doing in the past, we'd pick up an intervention and we would try it, even though it was never designed for it to be tried in that specific incidences. So a prime example of that, where we do, what we do now is we specifically go to the intervention, do it with fidelity, actually get training around the intervention with both the teacher and the interventionist. And one of the products that we use for decoding is called Empower Reading. It's a fantastic piece that will help with dyslexia. It helps with a number of other decoding issues. And it allows us then to move a child step-by-step step, um, to remediate those issues around PA and P. But if the intervention itself too is not measurable, 
then how do you know you've picked the right intervention? So we, we're multiple measurement people. We measure through three T's three times a year. So we do that in September, we do that in January, and then we do that in May again, so that we're in the beginning. How did we move? How did we move to the end? How do we program for them to come back in the fall? If they need an intervention, is the said intervention working in between there? Now, Empower's a 120 lessons of, of <laughs> a very, very systematic scripted intervention around decoding. What we have found with children that struggle with reading, reading is that we are way better off to start off with the, the stuff that George has produced and the JP Daz Center in grade one and grade two. And we actually don't start in power to grade three, three. And the combination between those two is huge in terms of kids reading. I tell this to everybody, parents and everybody, as educators, we are either teaching kids how to read or we're teaching them to be criminals. So that's our option because there's a direct correlation with kids that can't read and their interaction with the justice system. And from a leadership perspective, the people that need to push um, reading change in the organization are anyone that's in a leadership position. And I would argue if you're a teacher, if you're an inclusive ed coordinator, if you're a vice principal, if you're a principal, or if you're a superintendent, you have to get into the research and explain why this structure of reading and literacy supports is vital to ensure that all students are successful and you move the dial on every kid. In Alberta, we have two things called the Leadership Quality Centered and Superintendent Leadership Quality Centered. And these are the seven pillars that embody that. And the leadership piece really leads to, before we would do a measure holistically, and it doesn't really tell you anything. Our cat data was okay, but it didn't tell us anything. It didn't tell us how to fix reading. It didn't tell us how to fix math. So we wanted something that one teacher applied the toss rec, for example, pedagogically, they can change tomorrow. They instantly only enter a standard score in our system. Once the standard score is entered, it automatically tiers our kids from tier one, two, three, and four. And based on that, then you automatically know when did interventions happen in tier two, what interventions happen in tier three, what interventions to happen in tier four, specifically for each of the five pillars in reading. And when you have a system designed like that, it, it takes the guesswork out of it and, and the success out of it. In both schools, one in one in our Mennonite community and one in our, our First Nations community, we saw 18 standardized score points. So if, you, if five score points is a one year of growth, we're over three years of growth in one of our grade one classes last year. And in the other school, there's 15 standardized score points. So again, three years of growth in grade one. They may not come in with very with limited English and not, not knowing how uh, letter sounds and blended sounds and all that works. But by the end of it, we're producing kids that move into grade two, eight over 80% of them that can be successful readers. Where before, we were just guessing at it. And then you get into year three, year four, grade five, grade six. And to fix that problem is next to impossible. And uh, the the farther you go, the, the worse, um, of course, and the harder it is. A structure like this is not for the faint of heart. Um, implementation is tough, it's hard. And in education, I find that we often drink Kool-Aid for a long period of time. We drank F&P Kool-Aid for 12 years. And you know what? Um, all the research, and there's a number of research article out there, it's right. 
30% of the time. Um, 30% of the time isn't, is, isn't good enough for this superintendent. It should be good enough for anybody. The Ontario Human Rights Commission has also sort of put it out there that this isn't a product that should be used to teach reading. So when you know better, you have to do better. But saying, you know what, we're not very good at this. How do we get better? But systematic and explicit reading interventions are vital in terms of, you know, the five pillars. If you measure each of the five pillars, how do you move forward? with that. I talked about the average movement in grade one and and right now I think the biggest piece that we're missing in a jurisdiction is around oral language. What are we doing in oral language in kindergarten and grade one to ensure that our kids are not left behind? We typically don't do the three T's until January of grade one. So we do use CTOP which allows us to identify some decoding in those and we are using the early math assessment and the pens, of course. And then we do now have an oral language screener before they come in. So every kid that comes into ECS or early childhood studies gets CTOP before they come in. So we have a starting point to move forward. Again, I'll put into Power BI so that we can program and move the dial on every kid. But like I said, it's not for the faint at heart. It's for, for people that are passionate about reading and changing the trajectory of kids. I'll tell you a personal story going through school, if I, I've actually did the, the 3T testing, I probably test out, believe it or not, at a grade five or grade six level. Um, I don't read. And I'm a superintendent. I almost have a PhD. Every good, every good writer has an editor. That's what I always tell people. But I went through school not knowing how to read. And audiobooks have kind of changed my life in terms of that. A good audiobook for me is one that is about six hours long. That's how long it takes me to drive from my home to an international airport. So if I can get six hour long books, I can get two done in a trip. Um, <laughs> we're, we're, we're Northern Alberta, but those are, that is one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about reading because I feel lucky that I was given opportunities and skills and devices to help me cope, but I really never really learned how to, to read. And I do have decoding issues and fluency issues. Um, which is quite interesting. And I will do everything in my power as a superintendent for that not to happen to the, you know, the 3,500 kids that are in our jurisdiction. Because I think it's life-changing. Of what I'm one of the lucky ones because, uh, you know, I, I have a career and I've done all of it, but I know many people that haven't and they've been in jail and incarcerated and, and those sort of pieces. So thank you so much for sharing that and sharing that personal perspective as well. That is really, uh, it's it's really great to hear that and to bring it back to the why, why you're trying to do this and why you're so passionate about it. I share your passion in that regard. I am dyslexic myself. So I had struggles with early reading for sure. They run in my family. So this is where my personal passion for this comes from for sure. Um, so thank you for, for mentioning that and speaking to that. Um, did you have a strategic plan to deal with teachers who refused to change or leave balanced literacy? How did you handle that? Yeah, for, from our perspective, what we have changed is what a day looks like from an administrator's perspective and from a leadership perspective, what we consider the non-negotiable. Non George talks to them about effective professional development about best practices. So the non-negotiables for us in reading is where is your PA, where is especially grade one, let's say, where's your PA, where's your P, um, and then when you move up to higher levels, where's your morphology, where's all of those 
best practices that teach that. And we say, here's what your day kind of looks like. So there's this big myth about autonomy that once you've, you know, once you've passed an evaluation, then you're good to go and you're you're great to go for life. And I, I look at autonomy as as something that's earned. There's many teachers that have earned their autonomy, but it's the same as would you your daughter or your son just got their license at 16? Uh, would you give them the key to the Corvette or you give them the key to the Kia? Like they don't have the autonomy to drive the Corvette. Why would you do that? So if you've earned it, then fill your boots, go do that. But in our first, second year, and even teachers that are not getting results based on that, then if we're not getting those results, then you're, you don't have autonomy. And so that gets taken away. And here's the expectation when we come into your classroom, and this is what we want to see. On the math side, a non-negotiable is the CRA method of, of instruction. You know, do they have, is it concrete? Can they represent it? And those pieces around fantastic best practices. And if you don't do that PD, I believe first with leadership. So leadership knows the look for us, but we call them non-negotiables. A resource is always negotiable. Here's where a resource isn't negotiable. When it's, inter when it's an intervention. When Empower is specifically designed to fix decoding, don't use for fluency. Won't work. You already know that it's already it says in the manual, don't do it. And I think that's where we get into trouble with with FNP is right now FNP is being used for something it was never designed to be used for, but it feels good. And and reading is not about a feeling. Reading is structured, measurable and attainable for every child, I believe, or 95 percent of them. Did you want to add anything to that, George? Is there? Well, I think um, um, Mike has covered most of what I was going to say, but you know, every change is difficult and we didn't achieve every single teacher in the province to be on board in one day or even in a year. Like we have in many schools I have been working with, they have been sending their teachers year after year to receive the same training. Every single year they learn something new and they are changing their own uh, journey into literacy. Some of them have haven't heard anybody talking about best practices in their whole life. They they only um, had one course at the university that taught them nothing, and that was the first time they would be hearing anything about phonological awareness or phonics or or, or morphology. And so it takes time, and and it takes also the fact that we are using uh, norm reference assessments is is very important because. If you're a balanced literacy teacher and you're doing a fantastic job, then prove it. Show me with the data that you have generated that the kids are improving in your reading. And if they are improving, perfectly fine. Keep using what you are, are doing. But for most of the time that we have seen in the school, they are not. Particularly the kids that are struggling to read. So they need more systematic and explicit instruction that, that is not provided. Thanks. And uh, there's another question that kind of, I'm not going in order anymore, but this one kind of follows onto that around the incorporation of phonological awareness and phonics in grade one and two. When you incorporated more of that, how did that change the rest of the ELA program or the balanced literacy program? So what did you replace um, guided reading with um, and those FNP resources? And are you still using the FNP resources at all or have they been entirely replaced? Now, the new curriculum is 
as we know that, uh, and there is multiple pieces of evidence published studies, they have, they have clearly shown that there are, there is a core of foundational skills that you have to teach to the um, kids. Mike used the term non-negotiable. So I'm not saying we should never be thinking that phonics or PA is the only things we should be teaching to kids. I, like if you, if you start doing this and you're emphasizing phonics over anything else, then you'll start seeing that your kids are not performing well in reading comprehension or in reading fluency. You need to have a multi-componential approach to literacy. And that's what the new English language arts curriculum that we have put together is doing. It, it has the PA, but it also has the phonics. It also has the reading fluency, it has comprehension, it has oral language skills, it has listening skills, it has many other features. And you have to teach all of this. You can, I, I don't recommend to schools ever that they have to teach just phonological awareness or only phonics. And you need to look at, if you're a teacher, how do you structure your 40 minutes of LA time to cover, uh, depending on what grade you are teaching, in every grade, as Mike said, the non-negotiables, you have to spend some time on PA, phonics, um, uh, side work, reading, vocabulary, comprehension. As you're moving into upper elementary grade, then the, the focus shifts to more of oral language, morphology, comprehension activities. And I don't like to refer to specific programs. I'm not a big fan of packaged programs that you are reading through the pages. The reason being is that packaged programs are typically developed having an average student in mind. And I don't know a class that only has average students. It has a plethora of profiles. So unless you understand the level of your students and what they know or what they don't know in order to provide tailor-made instruction, then using a, what, I, what I say cookbook will not really improve your students' performance. Now, I may be recommending cookbooks once a while to teachers that have minimal experience teaching and, and they don't know where to start. So it's better to start from some, something that will help you get started and slowly, slowly, hopefully you'll get better than doing nothing. Yeah, and I would say, I would say there, there, Alicia, there is, there is only one factor in a classroom that matters most than all other, and that's the human being in that room. And if they're passionate about moving the dial on every kid, they're strategically planning around that child and where they're at and where to move them to the next level. There's not a program in the world that is useful if the teacher in that room isn't doing best practices. There, there, it, there, there's every research out there would tell you that it is the human being that's getting paid at that in that classroom that is the most vital component of kids learning. No program is going to fix anything. If it was, George wouldn't be sitting here. I wouldn't be sitting here. There'd be this silver bullet to reading. Read this book and you're off. You can just put your feet up and just make it happen. But it's not that simplistic. And I think that's the that's the biggest piece from perspective. Somebody says, what do you look for when you hire a teacher? I look for a teacher 
that can solve wicked problems because I'm actually paying for your brain. I'm paying for the the power for you to look at a child <laughs> doing assessments and going, this is what this kid's need to fix this problem. No book, no resource is going to do that. That's why I got into teaching. I think that's why majority of people got into teaching. Yeah, I think that's so true that the teacher knowledge is really the most important factor here and moving the dial on that. Um, so can you speak to really, are, have there been or are there changes happening in terms of initial teacher training in the Alberta faculties of education now that you have this new curriculum developed? I would say that there is, George can probably speak at the at the BEAD level. I would say this year was the first year that we've moved the dial, but it is at a master's degree level in which we went to the university and said, this is the master's course that misses the master's degree you're going to deliver for us in literacy and numeracy. And um, this is what we want and we'll pay you to do it. But if you're not doing that, we're going to find somebody that will do it for us. And it's the first time that... I think you're starting to see that influence in bachelors of educations there, you know, we talk with kids all the time and I don't, I think the slow, the change there is much, much slower. In fact, we just had a group of 30 kids from a university up visiting our area in our schools for two days. And one of the questions I meet with them and have a supper with them at the end. And one of the kids put up their hands and said, we noticed that there's no F and P in your schools. What do you use? And I said, you you don't got enough time for me to go on um, about what we do. But anyway, it was a good question. So they're still being taught at post-secondary on queuing systems and those sort of systems, which we know the Ontario Human Rights Commission and we know from research that they just don't meet the needs of kids. George can probably maybe speak a little bit more. Yeah, I think that there are there has been some movement, particularly after the Ontario Human Rights Commission report, and that comes from uh, the Ministry of Education asking for the faculties of education of what exactly they are doing, and also from the faculties of education themselves that they realize that they need to offer more courses. But a change is slow. We can't change everything in a year. So, um, you know, I have been in Alberta for 20 years. I haven't seen any uh, movement into mandatory early screening for 20 years, and it just happened this year. And I haven't seen any Ministry of Education sharing uh, resources with the schools and interventions and asking them to implement them and report back to Alberta Education the scores of the kids before and after the intervention. So it took 20 years, I have seen it. So hopefully the next 20 years, I will also see more courses at the undergraduate level for pre-service teachers. Well, that's amazing. Thank you for keeping it up. And I hope it doesn't take you 20 more years to get those courses into the undergraduate level. Um, I did notice that the University of Alberta now has a graduate certificate program that's opening up. That's really interesting. Is that the program you were talking about, Mike, that you requested? Or is it a, a different program? Yeah, so we the, the, the certificate program, George, has been a part of for a long time. And we kind of wanted to blend that because in our assurance, what parents really want for us is to be connected communities. That's our first goal. And the second is literacy and numeracy. And so we wanted to pair what we were doing out of George's research in terms of reading and say, what are we doing with math? And so we currently have a project with Carleton University out of um, Carleton out of Quebec, I think. No, Concordia out of Quebec, Carleton out of Ontario, 
and partnering with the researchers there to do the same in math of what we have accomplished in literacy. We're just yeah, four or five years um, behind literacy in that piece. So trying to build the same sort of, like I said, talk about the CRM model of teaching and the non-negotiables to do the same thing for kids in numeracy have we done in, in literacy. That's great. And I love that you as a superintendent are having those conversations with universities and saying, hey, like, you know, we really are the end consumer of your your, grad, your students and we want to see them equipped with these skills. If like, can you imagine if every superintendent um, had those conversations and said, you know, we're going to hire the students out of the school that is doing the training, you know, that that's what we're looking for. And that's what we want to see. If any other superintendents are watching, please, please start having those conversations, too. Yeah, um, call me. <laughs> <laughs> um, about screening tools. So the one that you're using, you've mentioned that was great. Asking about Acadians and Dibbles. Um, and if those are um, just that those are often recommended, uh, could you explain the difference between these and the screeners that you're using? Yeah, um, the Dibbles or Acadian, they're not norm reference assessment. They're criteria or benchmark assessment so they give you a score and if you're performing below that score then you are at risk or not at risk but the difference with the normal reference assessments is that you get standard scores and percentage ranks and you can any change in the scores over time is the result of um, instruction so typically if you want to go into progress monitoring and and, and check the progress of kids uh, norm reference assessments are ideal as opposed to not norm reference assessments like DBOs and academics. Now, I know that these two are free, and sometimes when you don't have money and you want to download something as a teacher and use it in your class to quickly check how your kids are doing and if they mastered the skill that you're trying to um, teach them, that may be easy to use and accessible. I laugh, Alicia, because when we first of this, I said to George, I want something with a coefficient index and validity and reliability above 0.9. <laughs> and he, he kind of chuckled with me. Well, you've limited your selection, he said, because <laughs> there's not many that are above 0.9, but I, I wanted to go for gold. <laughs> That's great. And um, and in terms of the measurable growth, and you know, with the um, norm referenced uh, screeners that you're using, you mentioned a couple of times that you know any change in the score is really due to actual improvement in the child, not just growth, right? So could you just compare that a little bit to the sort of assessments that are built into the FMP program, like those benchmarks, the BAS or the DRA? Uh, because as a person who I speak with parents a lot, I do a lot of um, talking with parents, you know, and the scores that they're often being uh, provided would be a reading level, like, a, you know, they're at level one or they're at A and, you know, the, the child is improving. They've gone up two levels. So they feel like, you know, things are are moving along. Like that's the, the messaging that they're getting. So could you just sort of speak to how that would compare to the sort of um, or, or why that is perhaps misleading with those yeah. reading levels? I'll just say one thing and then George can pipe in like it, anytime you buy an assessment criterion reference assessment and they are unwilling to give you the formula on how said level is being calculated to me it's fictitious it means it's not real because if they were open and and and, and clear on, on how that was you would actually know what a letter a is 
And, and I think the difference is one, when you go to norm reference, it is 100% real in that snapshot in time, where the other one, because you can go from a letter, you can go for level A to level B, but it's not actually accurate. And, and, and the research would tell you that 30% of the time, the kid's not that the kid is reading at the right level that they should be based on that assessment. So that means seven out of 10 times it's wrong. And so if you're okay with a 30% uh, success rate, because that's you're saying 30% of the time it's right, jeepers. So anyone that any, because we were for a long time, we were using Star Reader as well with Accelerated Reader, again, would not give up their secrets behind the page. And if they're not going to give up, where if you look at a manual on a norm reference, you can see exactly how the score is calculated. You can put that into a spreadsheet. You can get kid uh, teachers to enter standard score and automatically do all the conversions in the whole bit. They're not hiding anything. Where the other ones, in terms of a company, I believe are not open and transparent, and therefore I'm always a little bit more skeptical from a superintendent's chair. But George can definitely probably talk to you a little bit about the more of the mechanics that around the accuracy. Yeah, I, I think the critical point here when you're choosing assessments is how can you increase your chances to improve your students' performance by giving them an intervention that is targeting the areas that they are struggling? So uh, if you are using this kind of, like CTOP, for example, you know that it is assessing phonological awareness, rapid naming, um, short-term memory. If you are struggling in each one of these areas and you get a phonological awareness or a short-term memory or a rapid naming intervention program, and the same with some of the other assessments, like non-word reading in uh, power that is giving you a fair, like a very good indicator of whether the kids are struggling in phonics or not. So if you're profiling the kids and you have the option of using a better assessment or an assessment that can do this job well and provide you with the information that you need to uh, be successful as an interventionist, then why not doing it? So that's my personal um, opinion about norm reference versus norm, not norm reference or criterion reference assessments. And even with the three T's, as I said at the beginning, this is a set of tasks that the principals, when I met with them 15 years ago, they felt very comfortable with that. We started with seven assessments and ended up with these three package programs. I'm not saying they are the only ones that they are the best of the best, but I'm saying they're good enough to do the job that we want them to do so that we can identify the needs of the kids and provide them with targeted intervention. So Alicia, just to go back a, a little bit to the guided reading question too as well. So what do you do for guided reading? Our guided reading, we still do guided reading, but it's based on skills, not a fake reading level. And so it's based in a pillar based on skills. And so you might have three, four, five kids, probably max, that are working on a blended letter sound as opposed to a reading level that is not accurate. And so when you do your guided reading based on skills, you see astronomical improvement on blended letter sounds, decoding fluency and phonics. It's a game changer, but we were using it for leveled reading that wasn't accurate. And now we use it for skills. Sure. I think a lot of the time, too, when people think of guided reading, they think specifically of the strategies in, you know, the big guided reading book, which, you know, is very much about 
using that time period with small group reading with the kids, but to be encouraging them to use the three queuing. So what you're saying is you're still doing that time period with the kids where the teachers with a small group, uh, it's just the teachers working on skills with them while they're reading rather than working on queuing. Is that right? Yeah, the structure, the structure works. The queuing doesn't. So the structure is we still use that structure. It's fantastic to build small. No, I would never say that small group instruction isn't great. But so a small group queuing isn't. We don't get results from that. We didn't. Um, another question was about um, some research and literature um, suggestions or recommendations. What research and literature did the school boards or ministry draw upon for the implementation process specifically? So anything that is that translational research or implementation research uh, that you could recommend people take a look at? Well, the, the schools, the school authorities in Alberta have autonomy. And, and Mike can correct me on this. So for many years, Alberta education was hesitant to even recommend any resource to the, to the school divisions, or they have been avoiding doing this because they, the school divisions have autonomy. Uh, so there is a fine line right now that we are trying to help the school divisions that have been using less effective practices, but at the same time, allowing school divisions like Fort Vermilion school divisions that have been using evidence-based practices for several years to continue using them without imposing anything on, on these school divisions, as long as they have data to show that they are moving to the right direction. It's needless to say when Alberta Education actually asks school divisions to report on the assessments that they are using, that's at the beginning of COVID, about 12% reported not using any assessments. So if you could even conceptualize this, that there are school divisions that they don't have any assessments in place. And that forced Alberta education to actually think that we need to provide something for this 12% that they don't have anything. But they also allow Mike because they know that he's using norm reference, which is the cold, cold standard of assessment, to keep using his assessments. They haven't asked him to change into the castles and cold cards or the lens that Alberta Education has released and shared with the schools. One of the places where we started, uh, Alicia, um, when we first started with George, and George put us onto this, is, is the Florida Center of Reading Research. And there's a wealth of knowledge there in terms of reading around the science of reading and where to go with it. Even when you have, you know, there's a shift and a, a different wind change when even uh, people that have, have been in the game a long time, uh, Lucy Calkins is a prime example of that, who said, you know what, I've got it wrong and I'm going to fix it. And she's slowly changing everything she's doing to align with science of reading. Um, she's not quite there yet, but when when a researcher like that says, you know what, I'm I'm not right. And this is this research makes sense and this is the direction we got to go. I need to change. But then you look at other resources that are saying aren't aren't changing at all. That that also gives me a signal of saying, huh, um, then obviously there's something not right there. Because when we know better for kids, we do better. That's just it's that simple. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, there's another question, uh, just to sort of follow up on this idea about sort of system change. 
Research for sustainable change in instructional approaches in reading stresses a system level approach to reading improvement that looks to organ, uh, organizational conditions rather than micro level individualistic approaches focused solely on teachers and their knowledge. So the question is, is a system-based approach, so leaders at all levels, in place in your school board and in the province now? Uh, in our school board, I would say in the province, I would say they're not there yet. I, I would say it's the only way to go. So and let me explain assurance model just a little bit. So we go to parents, our stakeholders, and say to them, what are three of the most important things that you want your child in our system to be able to do? And they told us that we want you to be connected to a culture community. There's 15 different schools and they all have a different sort of nuance to them. And they want us to be connected to that. We want our kids to be able to read and write at the level. And we want kids to, to fully understand foundational numeracy skills. Once we have that, then, then it's up to the board of trustees to adopt that. And then it's up to the superintendent to say, here's our measures on how we're going to measure the system and be open and transparent to parents as much as we can. Then we break it down to principals who, who need to go, what do you I need to know in order to accomplish this? What professional development happens between the system and principals? And then what professional development happens between the principals and the teachers? And then what professional development happens between the teachers and the educational assistants, or what we term to call them in our jurisdiction, interventionists? And it's interesting, when you break it down, we have evolved to a point where teachers were doing all the assessment. Now the majority of the screeners, in terms of assessment, because we've, or sorry, the, the majority of educational assistants are doing the interventions rather than some of them being that when we first started in power, it needed to be a teacher. But now we have interventionists, which is an educational assistant that's doing that. And the reason why it works out sometimes better is because they don't play with it. It's scripted, it's structured, and they just do it. And sometimes when we know just a little bit and think we can do a little bit better, and then we change the intervention, you take away the fidelity and the validity of it, then we don't accomplish anything. And so that PD has happened over five years. We've used George's master students over and over. We fly them up um, and take them on scooter rides and take them out. We don't take George out, but we take his master's people out. And, and they have helped do PD for us immensely um, around assessments, screening, PD interventions, and it's okay. It's, it's, it's just, a, to me, it's so small in terms of money from a system level. Um, we're very system organized and not necessarily site-based. And so that's, I 100% agree, system level thinking and a actual structure what works, that's, the, that's what moves the system. That was a great answer. And I just want to know why George doesn't go skidooing when he comes to visit you. It sounds like lots of fun. <laughs> hey, that's my complaint all the time. <laughs> I get I get always pictures of my students and they, they send them to me and they have fun skidooing there. And I, I tell Mike, how come every time I come over there, you pick me up and then I go directly to lecture and then in the next plane, you come back. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Um, maybe I'll just ask one more question and then we'll wrap it up. Um, thank you. And maybe if you can just end with teacher resources. So we've had a few questions about uh, recommended resources or reading for teachers. And I know there's tons and tons of stuff available and you both have mentioned a few this evening. 
But if you wanted to just end by maybe recommending one or two resources that you think that teachers should run out and visit, they want to learn more. Yeah, he's not even paying me to say this, but if you if you get your hands on Reading Companion, um, it is a it's fantastic in terms of foundation um, to get started with. It really puts the phonics and the phonemic awareness back in balance literacy or whatever you're programming so that you fully understand what a child needs before they can actually get there. Um, where, you know, sometimes we focus so much on comprehension, but if we actually fix the code and comprehension would come more as a byproduct as anything else in the phonics companion, it's easy read, it's easily implemented. So spend the 90 bucks and it's the best 90 bucks you'll spend in understanding a deeper um, understanding. If you want a full picture around science of reading, we did an entire book study and analyzed it over a full year on the threads of reading and understanding that, that structure of science of reading and, and understanding the pillars in depth in, in depthly so that you can move it in your classroom. You need to fully understand each pillar. I hope you're not paying off for not taking me first to doing my <laughs> <laughs> I, buy, I always I always laugh at him because I buy my first class ticket every time on what we actually call scare air it's first class because you get a window and an aisle seat um it's very <laughs> small <laughs> yeah I think you know for a place that has resources for multiple there are different sites but they have resources for different pillars of literacy instruction so I think we would need another session for another an hour and a half to go through these different places. I personally, um, and, and Mike mentioned this earlier, I recommend teachers who are starting uh, this process on, or just embarking on the science of reading to look at the work and the resources that are available in the Florida Center for Reading Research. It has lots of activities and downloadable PDF files that they can use in their own class. And they are arranged per grade level, so that makes it even easier for the teachers to use. For phonics, um, we are very happy that the phonics companion is finally out in as a hard copy. So I, I do highly recommend this because it's based on empirical data we have here in Alberta, we have tested it, it's based on a Canadian context and not from the US. And there are, keep in mind that for comprehension, there isn't anything that is packaged, that like, comprehension is the product of underlying components. So unless you teach decoding and oral language skills and morphology, it will not come in place. So um, there is nothing that I, I would, you know, recommend as a package program for that aspect. And and really, it doesn't matter what language you're learning in. Uh, teaching readings, like we're we've learned all our reading from George, who's from Cyprus. English is not even his first language. Um, and uh, reading is reading. It doesn't matter where you're from. The process and the science of it is is the same. That's a really good point. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Thank you both for joining us tonight and for sharing all of your information. I definitely uh, learned some interesting things and it was a really interesting conversation for me. I hope it was enjoyable for both of you as well and for our guests. And I wanted to give you both a chance if you wanted to um, have any sort of closing thoughts or closing words to leave everyone with. Yeah, thank you, Alicia. Thank you to um, Dyslexia Canada for organizing uh, this session. 
I am, uh, as we said, we have been doing this work for about 15 years in, uh, in Alberta. We, we went through the hard times of working with only one school and listening to one, have one school listen to us, to then one school division, Mike's division, and now we have about 16 school divisions that are listening to what we have to say, and they have reached out for help. And we have now also Alberta Education, the Ministry of Education that is following the science of reading. They ask for data to make informed decisions. They have mandated screening of all the grade one to three kids as of September, 2022. They have mandated also the provision of evidence-based interventions in the schools and they ask for data to continue with that direction. So you see that slowly, slowly, we have started to gain some momentum and, and get people to listen to what is good practice based on not what George says or what Mike says, but what research says. And I see that some of my colleagues uh, from uh, universities in Ontario and Nova Scotia have been on the call today I want to thank you for joining us, and it's. Uh, I, I want to thank you for the work you have done with the Ontario Human Rights Commission report. Uh, it's very important to keep up the work with, you do with the school divisions and the Ministry of Education in your own uh, province. Uh, and I want to thank Mike as well for joining us tonight. I know that he's a very busy man, but he gladly accepted to be part of this session. So thank you. Yeah, and thanks for the invite on my behalf to, yeah, I'm in a school tonight because our central office caught on fire last week, so that's always fun. So we're in the middle of dealing with all that fun stuff, and uh, it's always great to be part of a good conversation, and really, tomorrow is your first day of changing the lives of kids differently, and uh, uh, I think you have the passion and the desire to change kids and move them, and the science of reading is a huge success to that and uh, it, you will just feel so much better of the work you do. Well, thank you both. And on that, I will say thank you to everyone for joining us tonight. Uh, you can find out more information at dyslexiacanada.org, obviously our website. This again was the first of our Spotlight Series webinars. We have another episode scheduled in two weeks with a group of educators that worked as a part of the Martin Family Initiative, First Nations schools across Canada, and another episode two weeks after that with a, a school team from Nova Scotia. So we are hoping to bring you stories from right across Canada, and I hope you will continue to join us and, and share and tell your friends. So thank you, everybody, and have a great night. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dyslexia Canada's Spotlight. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe and share the link to this episode on social media. And let's keep the conversation going. If you have a story of progress that you would like to share, please get in touch with us by visiting dyslexiacanada.org.